trees are green Red roses too I see them blue For me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world Welcome to Mind, Body, Health and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. And good morning to all of you. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Today, I hope we're in for a very interesting program because we're going to have a guest host who is going to interview me on my recent book, Psychedelic Medicine. So stay tuned for what I trust will be an exciting and educational interview. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Some of you may recall that years ago, Assemblyman John Vasconcellos, sadly now deceased, called during the program to make an important announcement. He said, Richard, I've got to tell all of your listeners about something that just happened to me. I got a case of shingles, and it was awful. It was worse than my heart attack. Shingles, sometimes called herpes zoster, it's a miserable disease. Actually, it's caused by the same virus, varicella zoster, as chickenpox. Whoa, it's terrible, John said. And I want to tell your listeners about something that they can take to make sure they don't get it. It's called Zostavax. Z-O-S-T-A-V-A-X. Zostavax. I mean, John was, was, had been in so much pain from these shingles that he felt the necessity to call up right during the program because he's a, he was a great guy and he wanted everybody up here in Mendocino County to know about this, this vaccine for shingles. Well, I've been keeping up with the research on it and now we have something new for you. It's called Shingrex, Shingrex. S-H-I-N-G-R-I-X. Shingrex is the latest and greatest to prevent shingles. And for those of you particularly over 50, go out there, talk to your medical health person, and find out about getting a vaccine so that you won't come down with this terrible thing that afflicted John Vasconcellos. As my grandmother would say, may he rest in peace. One more note today for news and notes, and that is you're all hearing about the coming of autonomous vehicles, vehicles that will drive themselves. But as you all know, there's a bunch of fear floating around. Can you really sit back in your car and let go of the wheel and let this thing drive itself? I mean, the idea of it is psychologically nerve-wracking. But we're going to have to get over that. We really are. And here's why. Because science, for those of you who believe in science, as I do, tells us that even if the machines, and I shouldn't say if, even when the machines are able to drive 10% better than we do, it's going to save thousands and maybe tens of thousands of lives, which means when they drive 20%, it'll be even more uh, helpful to us, 30%, 40%. But in the beginning, it's important to know that even 10% better, even a 10% improvement over human beings will save thousands of lives. And now, 
The reason I'm saying this is because it's going to be nerve-wracking in the beginning, and when we hear about the accidents that are caused by the autonomous machines, a lot of us are going to say, well, wait a minute, I don't know if I want to do that. I'm going to hold on to the wheel. But we've somehow got to wrap our consciousness around the fact that these machines, having all their sensors around the cars, are going to be so much safer than we are that even a 10% reduction uh, an improvement, I beg your pardon, a 10% improvement over us is going to be dramatic. So tuck that away. Discuss it with your friends. Think about it. What it's going to be like. You'll be sitting there. You're going to let go of the wheel. Have any of you had an opportunity to do so yet? I have. Just the other day, I got into a car owned by my friend, uh, Dr. Jim Ketzel, and he put, I put me in the passenger seat. He got out of the car, walked over to his mailbox, He's standing there with a remote, and all of a sudden, the car that I'm sitting in started up and drove itself over to his mailbox. It was quite phenomenal. So, give it some thought, and we'll talk about it again in the future. And now, to our interview. For this interview, since it's about the book that I just wrote, Psychedelic Medicine, we have a guest host who I'm pleased to introduce. It's my dear friend and colleague, the philosopher Charles Bush, director of the Fort Bragg Senior Center. Over to you, Charles. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Isn't this fun? This is an interesting. This is kind of psychedelic. It's like it's like warping identities here. You know, those of you who are fans of the show, uh, many of you know uh, that Dr. Miller is the founder and CEO of Wilbur Hot Springs, uh, which provides healing, prevention, and health maintenance. Um, you know, Wilbur Hot Springs combines the safety and security of the pristine Wilbur Springs environment with Richard's modern personal mind-body health philosophy, and uh, he is an extraordinary healer. Richard also, of course, is the founder of the internationally acclaimed Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program, um, where Richard integrated his techniques of humanistic psychology and psychophysical fitness training with a, a very modern uh, social rehab program and, and maybe is, has been more successful than almost anybody who's run any kind of rehab for folks who get into difficulties with uh, drugs of all kinds. Amazing accomplishments. Uh, and most recently and most importantly and why we're here in the studio today is that Richard has finally completed a wonderful book, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Power of LSD, Psilocybin, MDMA, and Ayahuasca. Big four amazing chemicals because they interact through the body with the mind and consciousness in an amazingly deep and profound way. Richard, you and I have lived through four decades now, almost five decades, um, of a war which seems to be slowly winding down, the war on drugs, which took uh, an amazing array of interesting and intriguing research possibilities for the advancement of human life, then faded into the background, and we ended up in a war, and we're finally kind of coming to our senses again and realizing how important and profound these medicines are. Dr. Miller, why did we get into a war? How did we get into a war, Charles? That's a great question. How did it come to be that after medical doctors in this country had prescriptive rights to heroin, to cocaine, to marijuana, 
and they had licenses to use these things, and they were used for various medicinal purposes. How did it come to be that we got into a war over them? Well, there are times in history when one man, I wish I could also say one woman, but we, do, we, we don't have as many women in history, although there are some, changed the course of history. I say men because men stand out, such as Alexander the Great, uh, Caesar, Napoleon, unfortunately, Hitler, Mussolini, more happily, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. Changed the course of history. In this country, in 1935, we had a man who was Secretary of the Treasury, he came from a famous and extremely wealthy family, oligarchs, if you will, the Mellon family. And the Secretary of the Treasury was Andrew Mellon. Andrew Mellon had a niece who was married to a man named Harry Anslinger who needed a job. So Andrew Mellon appointed his niece's husband, Harry Anslinger, to be the first director of the Federal Narcotics Bureau. Harry Anslinger was a notorious racist and a bigot. Harry Anslinger had it in his mind that black men in the United States were using marijuana to seduce white women. And so Harry Anslinger decided to go after these black men with a vengeance. He also had it in his mind that Mexicans were up to no good and Chinese were even worse. Basically, people of color were on Harry Anslinger's hit list. He went after the Mexicans in Southern California for marijuana, he went after the Chinese for opium, and he went after black people for marijuana and cocaine. So out of, so out of a, essentially a, a, a visceral racism uh, and, and the inability to simply destroy people's lives because of their color, he hit on whatever the drug of choice was of each of these ethnic groups and then got them outlawed and then went to war really against people of color not the drugs he went to war against people of color 1935 fast forward 2018 and we have how many million young black men in jail in this country Harry Anslinger blacks and Mexicans were prosecuted in inordinate numbers. And when white folks were caught with the same materials, they got by with various put-offs, whether it was probation, suspended sentence, maybe a little time. Sometimes time, I shouldn't say never, because when I was teaching at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in the late 60s, I remember when a fellow was given 10 years for two marijuana joints. But this was the fallout because others piled on, like with a mania. In fact, <clears throat> there was a famous film that some of you listeners uh, can still access online called Reefer Madness. And Harry went to Congress, Charles, and he told, Char he told Congress that these people are seducing our women, that they're ruining the lives of children, that they're running amok in the streets, that they're killing people. And he convinced Congress that that was true. Then he got the United States government to allow him to go to the United Nations. 
and he stood in the United Nations and he told the countries of the world that you also must make these various substances illegal and prosecute people. And what he had behind him was the sanction teeth of the United States. Fast forward from 1935 to 2007, when I went to Israel with Dr. Rigged Doblin of MAPS, Dr. Michael Mithoffer, who did the famous psilocybin study, which I'll talk about later, and some other scientists, to talk to the Israelis about using MDMA to treat their PTSD people, because at the time of that, of that terrible intifada, they had people sitting in restaurants all of a sudden witnessing body parts flying around. It was horrendous, and they had thousands of people suffering from PTSD. This is now, what, 65, 70, let me figure it out, 1935, 65, 75, over 75 years later, I'm in Israel, and I'm told by the head of the Israeli Supreme Court, she said to me, Richard, we would love to try this psychedelic medicine, MDMA, on our PTSD people, but we can't do it. Because if we do, the United States government will sanction us, and we can't afford the sanction. So this is more evidence over 70 years later of the impact of one man, one racist, who started what came to be known by Richard Nixon, who gave it the name, another the fanatic racist, the drug, wars. the drug Wars. And as you pointed out earlier, Charles, this wasn't a war against drugs. A war against drugs is, you know, you take drugs in a room and you beat them with a hammer or you shoot at them. Or what do you do? You stomp on them with your foot. This was a war against people. And it was mostly a war against people of color. And it was mostly a war against people of color who were poor. And that's so, what's filling up our jails now. So, th so then, Richard, um, m midway through this period of time, um, a, a new, an, a, another explosion happened with the discovery of, of LSD and the beginning of the use of psilocybin and then ultimately uh, the, the uh, MDMA and its use among um, college professors, professionals of all sorts, and young, very serious students. And suddenly the stories began to arise and in the beginning even some some amazing research began to rise that suggested that these chemicals these psychedelic substances had the power to alter the mind and the body it's interesting your, your show is called mind body health and politics what we discovered was that there are chemicals that alter all four of those in radical and intense ways for the better thus setting up this kind of antagonism with an old story that was false in the first place and racially inspired, now supplemented by these amazing stories of healing and growth and unfolding and enlightenment, if I can use that word. That's the point at which you also were bursting on the scene along with a, a number of other psychologists and professionals um, and began experimenting with these drugs before they were scheduled and illegal and established before the government had a chance to pull them off the market that they were miraculous, amazing, unfolding, opening drugs. What was it like to experience that transition from that period of fear to that period of discovery? Well, I had the very good fortune to, to, to have been around when LSD and, and, uh, and MDMA and psilocybin uh, were, were still were legal. Right. And so I had the very good fortune 
to uh, experience these substances, uh, these medicines, if you will, uh, in, in the proper circumstances, namely with a set and a setting which came to be known as the gold standard of proper protocol. And there's something I should say here that's very important. What we learned very early on in uh, relating to these substances is that when they are used properly, when they're used with a protocol that has been proven, they are medicines and they really do almost miraculous things. However, take the exact same substance and, you, and use it in another circumstance which isn't a proven protocol and all hell can break loose. And so you have both things with the same substance. Then you actually have a third thing, which is what's called recreational use. And in recreational use, there's no protocol. People are using them for fun. In those circumstances, sometimes people do get into psychological difficulty. Uh, and when they just use them offhanded, some of them do get into psychological difficulty. When they're used as a medicine, we don't have situations where there's psychological difficulty because we have professionals on hand who know how to turn what is called on the street a bad trip into a good trip. And that's really just a procedure that we have developed. When a person experiences in a, in a proper protocol difficult, what you might call emotions, anxiety, paranoia, which does happen. We teach the person how to go into that negativity and how to deal with it so that they come out on the other side even more confident so that if in their regular life they ever run into anxiety or paranoia again, they've got the tools for dealing with it and they feel like confident people. They never have to be afraid of anxiety again. But again, this is because we have protocols, we have techniques that have been developed over time. But getting back to your question, so I had this very good fortune uh, in, the, in the 60s to be able to uh, experience uh, LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide, and to have wondrous experiences. And all my colleagues, many psychologists like myself and psychiatrists, were also taking it. And there was, by the way, voluminous research on LSD, scientific research that was going on uh, while it was still legal, both here and in England. Uh, there was a lot of work that was done treating alcoholics. In fact, uh, one of the founders of, uh, of, of AA, uh, Bob and Bill, I think it was Bob who, who took LSD and said, you know, this may be the breakthrough that we've been looking for. But then, as we all know, recreational use in the 60s exploded. Politicians went into a frenzy again. We had the legacy of Harry Anslinger to deal with. And in 1967, in their wisdom, Congress made legislated that LSD and research were illegal. Grinding halt, all of a sudden, people at the highest levels of the university research teams were unable to go on with research. I mean, it was possible, but the obstacles that were built in their way were beyond most people's ability to, to contend with. So, so um, the official research 
ground to a halt because it was no longer sanctioned and the materials were no longer available. On the other hand, since that outlawing of research and investigation of what professionals were saying uh, was an incredibly ripe chemical that had possibilities because it let us see deeply into ourselves and into our culture and with proper guidance and proper support experience great changes in our lives despite the fact that the laws said you can no longer do this research you can no longer use these substances literally millions millions of people have and did and went right on using them unfortunately without the same kind of support and without the careful research but the chemicals themselves and their impact seem to be so deep and so important that that change in law did not change how many people were using it, it changed rather the supervision and the safety of the context. But the discoveries themselves were so mind-blowing and so liberating and so pregnant with possibility that people, in the face of all of these laws, went right on using them. And you, of course, dealt with some of the fallout in some of those programs. Um, and at the same time, I know you've had your hand and your eye on the pulse of the incredible unfolding that came from the illegal use of these substances during the last 40 years. What about all of that? There's collateral damage that does not get talked about much, Charles, that came of this. And the collateral damage is the undermining of trust in our institutions in this country. And that is very serious. You see, when you have millions or tens of millions of people doing something that they know is okay, but at the same time is illegal. What you have done is you've turned honest people into criminals. They have gone over a line and that changes their mentality. They have to then either think of themselves as people who are criminals, outlaws if you will, people willing to break the law. Remember, the penalty for possession of LSD can be as much as life imprisonment. We're not talking about a misdemeanor like a, like a traffic ticket or something like that. We're talking about the penalty for marijuana in some states being 10 or 15 years in jail. That means when these people, tens of millions of people, have been smoking marijuana, they had to come to grips with the fact that they were outlaws. And when you turn honest people into outlaws, basically honest people, these are not people who are, who are doing robberies, they're not people who are stealing from stores, they're not people who are doing fraud and embezzlement and all kinds of crimes. These are people who are doing one thing and one thing only. They're using a substance such as MDMA or LSD. We'll get to MDMA, which was made illegal in 1985. When, they, when, when honest people do these things, it undermines their trust in the government. You know what it's sort of similar to, Charles? It's sort of similar to when we were little boys, and we're 11, 10 or 11 years old, and, and we're told that if you masturbate, something terrible is going to happen. Now you grow hair on the palm of your hands, or your fingers will, will fall off, or all kinds of terrible things. Literally, I mean, people listening, you may think this is a joke, but 50 years ago, really, that was the case. We were told these terrible things would happen to you. And then all of a sudden, one or two of the little boys did it, and nothing happened to his hand. 
And then all of a sudden, a few more of us did it, and nothing happened to our hands. Wait a minute, there's no hair on my hand. My hand didn't fall off. Nothing bad happened to me. What do you think that did? It undermined our trust in authority and in our parents and in the church, particularly who told us these terrible things would happen. We no longer believe them. If we can't believe them on something like this, we can't believe them on anything. That's how we came to think. It undermines belief. And that is one of the sad and very important things that doesn't get discussed very much in these so-called drug wars, which is the undermining of institutional trust. And that's part of how, by the way, we come to now have this man, uh, Donald Trump, as President of the United States, because people think that since they don't trust government, they might as well have a big bully like him who, who's going to go around the world beating people up or whatever he thinks he's going to do. But there's a connection here, and it's an important connection that needs to be made. But it's not just with Trump. It's a, it's a connection with tr uh, losing faith in our governmental institutions which protect our democracy. You know, Richard, uh, as you know, during the same 40, 50 year period, um, I spent my life designing schools, colleges, and high schools. So I was in the company of those young people who uh, were both experimenting with these drugs uh, and continue to at the same pace. Um, and I saw firsthand uh, at the beginning of that period before all of that was happening, we grew up with a certain kind of uneasiness about authority because it's in our genes as Americans. But I watched that happen. I watched young people literally lose their respect for elders and the institutions of their culture with devastating consequences. And thank you for saying that because it's so seldom talked about. I literally can tell you by firsthand testimony that I have watched hundreds of young people react in dismay to the dishonesty uh, of their elders and to being engaged in a war when they were not engaged in war at all. They were being made war on. So brilliant point, really important point. Let's, um, let's talk about the drugs themselves a bit because uh, in your book, one of the things that happens is, is some real pioneers of exploration of these substances um, give us some roadmaps, tell us some tales, uh, show us what some of the possibilities are. Um, tell me just a few of the things that you think psychedelic chemicals in general, well used under good supervision in the best of circumstances, what is this magic all about? What is this uproar all about? How could we uh, be engaged in this massive political and social movement because some people ate some pills? In the early 1980s, I was fortunate enough to be administered MDMA in my therapist's office, Dr. Robert Cantor, also now deceased. My first uh, time with it was one of the most phenomenal experiences of my life other than the fact that I'd already been in LSD experiments. The difference is that when I took LSD and the world opened up to me and I felt close to other human beings in a way that I never had before in my life, I had the realization that all human beings on the planet are part of one big organism that we are like cells in a larger organism. I had the real Related on the inside. That we're intimately. all related intimately, yes, <laughs> on the inside. And I also, you know what of what I speak. And, and I also had the experience on that first LSD uh, experience. I had an emotional experience that the earth itself 
is one big organism and that we are all cells and that we're all part of it and the earth is a living breathing thing and every single part of the earth is part of that living breathing organism and we're all cells on it and that changed my world view the life force was no longer an idea or a set of words you actually directly experienced it and it changed you and it changed me I also came to realize that I could see things in my head that I had never ever seen before in different ways. I could problem solve. I could build structures inside my mind that I was never able to build uh, 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 by itself. So you're asking about some of the benefits. Well, one of the benefits is the psychotherapeutic benefit in terms of the connection with other people. Another benefit is the benefit of creativity. And we do know that Sub Rosa, Steve Jobs used it in his creative experiments. We do know that the astronomer Carl Sagan used LSD in his experiments, though he didn't tell anybody. And after he died, his widow, that, that is how scary this is. That is how so afraid people are, even at the highest levels of science. Carl Sagan, Steve Jobs, Watson and Crick used it, used LSD in their discovery, it's well known, of the DNA uh, molecule, right? And, and the double helix. So it's used for, for creativity, it's used for health. The English have, have, have experiments showing how LSD is effective for cluster headaches. We think that there's evidence that they can be used for alcoholism and more. Then comes MDMA. So I get it administered, as I said a few moments ago, in my doctor's office. And my heart opened up in a way that I had never experienced. If LSD opened up my head, then MDMA opened up my heart. And I had this feeling of compassion and of love that was whelming. It wasn't overwhelming. It was just whelming. It just filled me up. And I had that session for two hours. Then I came down. I was able to drive back to my office and I was able to get back to work the same day. Whereas LSD can be 6, 8, 10, 12 hours. Here was something that lasted an hour or two and allowed one to get back to work. My gosh, I thought this is the greatest psychotherapy drug that, that's ever known. And all of my colleagues all over the place were using it. And then, in their wisdom in 1985, Congress made it illegal. And it has been illegal until recently under the direction of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, you all can look it up online under Google, MAPS. Dr. Michael Midhoffer did a groundbreaking experiment with MDMA and PTSD, and the results have been phenomenal. Now the government is allowing what's called Phase three trials of MDMA with PTSD. A phase three trial is the last trial before FDA approval, which we hope will come in the year 2020. And then this medicine, MDMA, will be allowed to be used in psychotherapy by doctors all over the country. That is huge progress. We know that 
that uh, before MDMA was was listed, uh, scheduled, that it was being used in in therapy groups and in individual therapy um, all over the country, all over the world, actually, yes. with the most extraordinary and rapid results. The the, the two things that um, I both experienced in in those uh, days of doing therapy and being involved in therapeutic work with with MDMA, the most amazing thing uh, it. it it's it's such a simple thing to say and yet to actually experience it uh, over a matter of an hour to lose one's fear both of yourself and of other people and to be able to relate non-defensively just in, suddenly just that feeling of relaxed listening where I can acknowledge who you are and acknowledge perhaps what our relationship is this difficulties have been if it's a, 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 a partners uh, it's it's that complete absence of fear, just the dissolving of the fear and being able to look at life new and fresh again like a child uh, would look at it. We saw people literally in one or two uh, sessions change completely in their relationship, their perspective, lose that anxiety, lose that fear, lose that tension, lose that debilitating um, what we now understand as PTSD, but it's been around for a long time. It doesn't just come from war. It comes from any kind of trauma. So, so we know that this substance um, has the capability in a therapeutic environment to completely alter that defended position and produce growth again, produce change again, and produce integration and relationship again. How long do you think it's going to be before it just becomes a part of the arsenal? And what kind of a change is that going to make in culture, Richard? Well, it, it has huge potential, Charles, because when it becomes legal, again, as I said, hopefully in 2020, it's going to spread like wildfire around the country amongst the therapists. And when it becomes illegal, then I imagine it's going to also proliferate on the street. It already has, but it's being used in dancing for the most part, called raves where people take it and uh, uh, because it, it, it is also an energizer and they stay up and, and dance and, and have fun. And so I, I think there's, I don't want to be too optimistic, <laughs> right? Because there's it can no, sound almost crazy, it, can it? It can, you yes, know, and then you yes. sound like, you know, you're a cheerleader yeah, for a particular right, medicine. Overvalues that don't take him seriously. Right, and, <laughs> uh, yes, and we all know that, you know, that there, there, are, there are no panaceas. But there's also something Im important that I want to bring to light here about this medicine and all medicines, which is an all psychedelic medicines. And that is the key to real change of behavior is being able to bring it back across the line. And what we mean by that is there's a line between psychedelic consciousness and normal consciousness. And that heart opening that we talked about with MDMA, that dropping of defenses the way you beautifully described it, that ability to act fearlessly and compassionately at the same time. That needs to be brought over the line into daily consciousness and therein lies the challenge because that is not easily done and I don't want to put out to the public as if that is easily done. That takes work and that is why protocols have been developed for follow-up which means after you have this special psychedelic experience, 
you then meet with your professional guide, both later that day and the next day, and going on into the future, in order to do what we call integration and practice. Practice, practice, practice. Opening up the heart is not a one-shot affair or a ten-shot affair with a psychedelic medicine. What the psychedelic medicine does is it shows us what is possible. But then it's our job to make the possible probable and the possible habitual so that we can be that way, so that we can walk around with fewer defenses, so that we can listen to each other with greater compassion, so that we can practice empathy. But these are all skills that require practice, and they often require practice with a coach, which is what really what psychologists and psychiatrists are when they're doing their best work. We're coaching and we're helping people to practice the skills that enhance their lives. I know that uh, the, the uh, brilliant American philosopher Ken Wilber makes a distinction between states of consciousness and stages of the development of being. And so uh, in those terms, what you're talking about is these, these uh, elevated states of consciousness that can be um, chemically induced put you in a different state where you see and experience not the way you normally see and experience. And when you come back down, that extraordinary experience, those extraordinary, visiting those extraordinary states begins to infiltrate the stage of your own personal unfolding. It's kind, it's kind of like where a, um, a young person, uh, a kid, you know, we talk about age six, the age of reason. Before you have that reasoning capability, you are irrational, unreasonable. You can't figure things out. You begin to have a few experiences of seeing how things are actually connected and how they actually work. That, the first time you have them when you're a little kid, is an altered state of consciousness. When you integrate that ability to see connections, you begin to reach the age of reason and grow up into a rational human being who can solve problems. The state, the sudden first attempt to figure something out in success, feeds back into the stage of your development where you're moving from irrational to rational. That same thing happens up stages and it's states of consciousness that fuel a lot of that growth and change. That's right. However, there are exceptions to this, to the positive. And I'm going to give you an example of an exception to the positive. Dr. Roland Griffiths, who has appeared on this program, did groundbreaking research with psilocybin mushrooms at Johns Hopkins University, easily available online for all of you listening. Or you can go to my archive on mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and hear the uh, interview with Dr. Roland Griffiths. Here's what Roland and his associates did. They got a group of people who were suffering from depression and they tested them for their levels of depression. They then, in a certain protocol, administered a dosage of psilocybin mushrooms. They then followed these people up for an entire year. One year later, the people 
still had significant improvement in their depression. This is extremely important, Charles. This is extremely important because what this indicates is that there are medicines available and the psilocybin appears to be one of them, which will allow a human being to have one administration of the medicine and have a positive effect one year later. Now compare that to what is being sold to the American public, and here's where I get political, as in mind, body, health, and politics. Compare that to what is being sold to the United States citizenry. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, Prozac, Zoloft, Effexor, Luvox, Anaphronil, you name it. People have to take these 365 days a year, and they must pay for them 365 days a year, or their insurance must pay for them, which means we all pay for them because we all pay for the cost of insurance, whether we think so or not. So, on the one hand, A, a medicine that you take one time and has an effect for a year, B, a medicine you take 365 times and you pay for 365 times. These psychedelic medicines, Charles, are challenging the pharmaceutical companies in ways they don't like, and they are part of the war on drugs, and they will continue to fight against the research, against science, and against bringing to the public medicines that could be tremendously beneficial. And that's what the public needs to know about, and the public needs to vote and elect people who will protect us rather than protect the companies who are selling these medicines. You know, uh, uh, Richard, uh, I know that if uh, you or I or many of the people that we associate with regularly were asked, if, it, if you said, what's one of the most important life-changing events in your life? Is there something that happened to you that really altered the course and the direction of your life in a profoundly positive way? The majority of my closest and dearest associates over the last 50 years would say, yes, LSD, period. Yes. It changed my life. It changed my life profoundly. It is still changing my life. I always thought politically, if everybody who took it and could answer that question in the same way would all stand up at exactly <laughs> the same time and all be seen to each other, all the issues would be over because the numbers are so vast and the reports are so identical. Not the details of them, but the outcome is so identical. What happened to you, you might say, and the answer is, well, I took LSD and everything was different after that. Isn't that the most common thing that one hears? Uh, it's definitely the very common thing that one hears. And I think in answer to your question about coming forth, what we need, Charles, is we need people we need all the people who are over 71 years old <laughs> there you go. <laughs> who have taken LSD to come out and admit it. Why do I say 71? Because they would have been old enough in 1966 when it was still legal to have taken it then. So they can come out and say, hey, yes, I took it in 65, I took it in 64, I took it in 66, even early 67, before it came, became illegal, without fear of something happening. Because the fear in the population is, is fantastic. We had someone on this very program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, an author who, in addition to being an author, was a federal public defender 
a well-known lawyer. Her name is Ayelet Waldman. She's the wife of a famous author named Michael Chabon, who many of your listeners have heard of. And she wrote a book that I interviewed her on on this very program called A Really Good Day, and where she talks about 20 years of depression, 20 years of suffering from darkness, taking every single medicine in the pharmacopoeia and getting no help whatsoever, and then doing what's called microdosing. Microdosing is what you might call homeopathic doses. She took homeopathic doses of LSD, wrote about it in her book, A Really Good Day, and had a tremendous benefit to her 20-year depression. What I'm leading up to, though, is being a lawyer, what she did before she published the book was she consulted with a law team to make certain that she wouldn't be prosecuted by the government for writing about having taken these microdoses of LSD. That's the level of fear that has been instilled in the American public of good citizens, right? Criminals don't give a darn. They'll do whatever they, they please. We all know that. But the greatest majority of us are good citizens. We don't want to think of ourselves as criminals. We don't want to think of ourselves as outlaws. We really don't. We just want to go about our business with our families, you know, do our jobs, have dinner together, you know, and make nice. And so I get back to that point that I, that I said earlier. The collateral damage of making things illegal is that you create outlaws amongst honest people. And that is an extremely dangerous thing to do. It was dangerous when we made gold illegal, owning gold, and people want to own gold because it's in the very mythology of, of humanity going back in time, so that people were criminals because they owned gold. And now they're facing the exact same thing. Fortunately, we now have somewhat of a reversal going on in this country with regard to marijuana. But until that becomes complete on the federal level, Charles, we still have tens of millions, if not more, of people who are basically walking around as outlaws by smoking or eating marijuana. It's not right. And it's, 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 not, it's not right, and it's not only hurting the people, it's hurting their children. Because the children know that the parents are doing something that the parents have to somewhat be secretive about. And when kids pick up on this, they smell it. They know something's going on. I don't mean they smell the marijuana. They smell that the parents feel like they're doing something that's, that they have to be careful about or don't talk about in school or don't talk about to the grandpokes or hide it in some way. And when kids sense that, they know. And that's the beginning of feeling like I'm doing something wrong. And it's not healthy for her. Around us good citizens feeling like we're doing something wrong. We all want to walk around feeling like we're doing things right. It would be as if we planted the dangerous to each other. Let's imagine that you have a newborn babe and you go, I'm going to take care of my baby. The thing I'm going to teach them uh, is that it's us or them, and they're going to have to look out and be secretive all over. What a terrible is, in fact, what we've done. But, Richard, I want to go in a slightly different direction here. We've got a little bit of time left, and um, I want to say these words. Um
aesthetic discovery, the discovery of beauty, uh, the discovery of incredible systematic logic implicit in the structure of the universe, uh, the potential and depth of love between people or among the individuals of a group, the power and healing and are associated with the spiritual dimension or the spiritual aspect of people's lives. And we've been talking about the psychosocial, cultural uh, phenomenon of psychedelic medicine, and yet what we know is that were it not for this also being true, they might not have had the profound impact they had. For so many millions of people, taking these medicines opened up the heart of deep spirituality, the kind of spirituality that lies underneath all the religions. People say spiritual versus religion, but what they mean by that is that these substances, when taken again in appropriate circumstances, think about uh, the, the, the groundbreaking uh, time that LSD or psilocybin was given to uh, seminary students at the Harvard Chapel on Easter. Some of them placebo, some of them the real thing, and then we found out what happened to them, and the ones that got LSD had full-blown mystical experiences that were transforming to their lives, and literally millions of people have had that experience. People who were not spiritual encountered something that the great saints and teachers seem to have encountered occasionally and it was accessible and it has changed spirituality. Say a little bit about this maybe in the few minutes that are left. What about this? this is, is this the God pill? Well, Charles, living in a way is like waking up one day in a boat in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> we don't know how we got in that boat we don't know where it's going, and we don't know where it came from. And that's part of the great mystery of all our lives. Because no matter how many theories we have, belief systems, philosophies, religions, as far as I'm concerned, the fact of the matter is, we really don't know no, where no. we came from, and we really don't know where we're going, and we're all doing our best to make some kind of something out of this thing that we call life. And if we take something, that gives us a feeling of connection with it all. It's a wonderful thing, because then we feel like we're in the flow. We're part of the great awe of it all. We're not just a nothingness, a speck of sand on the beach with no meaning whatsoever. We have a sense of connection. And one of the greatest senses of connection that human beings can have, at least in my 50 years of studying human beings, is the sense of connection with each other. As Martin Buber said, all real living is meeting. It's connecting, like you and I are doing at this moment as we're looking at each other across the table with love in our eyes, and as we look over at Mike sitting here, and Susan Jewell standing there. And that's really what, what the connection of life is about. But we... ...in the things that we need to do, put bread on the make it it's take care of our health etc to get isolated from the connection with each other of being in the flow at the bottom line these medicines do for us and why people find them so wondrous because they give us a sense of connection with ourselves and with each other in ways that are profound there's a uh 
uh, a word that is used a bunch, I think, in, in psychological and developmental traditions now called flow, being in the flow. And uh, when you describe that, that awakening, um, it's, it's kind of like if you, if you sat at the edge of a river somebody just jump right in there and so you jumped in there and it looked one way but when it was enveloping your whole body and it was in motion and you were in motion and you were swimming as a part of the river something transforming and ecstatic happened I've heard LSD described as literally jumping into the river of life instead of remaining a spectator on the banks and the overwhelming sense that the river flows from an unknown place into an unknown place but right here and now it's absolutely present the whole river is absolutely present that's another way that people have described this amazing experience being connected with it all and knowing that it's all in motion and most importantly that that's okay that's actually okay. Well, I think what you just added there is very significant, that it's okay, that it's okay. But I will add something to it, that in addition to being in the flow, what the particular medicine LSD offers, and so does uh, psilocybin, and, and, and to a certain extent, so does ayahuasca, though I think to a, le a lesser extent, we didn't get to ayahuasca today, but we will some, perhaps some other time, that in addition to being in the flow, there is also the observing ego which allows us to both be in it and watch ourselves at the very same time. And what that does is it raises our awareness. And when we raise our awareness to that level where we're both swimming and observing ourselves swimming, we're, there in a, we're then in a position to be responders instead of reactors. And that is a critical difference and it's a critical dimension for many of us in this life think of it the difference between reacting which is reacting to something which means the something is causing the reaction in us and we have given up a certain amount of control by reacting whereas when we respond something triggers us but instead of reacting to it we take it in we observe it and we make our own choice as to whether we want to respond or not respond or perhaps change the topic or perhaps walk in another direction it isn't necessary because someone says something nasty to say something nasty back or even to acknowledge them one can observe it I don't want to say turn the other cheek but you could turn both cheeks and just walk away if you're willing to respond but that's a very important distinction and these medicines do uh, raise our awareness to such an extent that our ability to respond is better however again it takes practice 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 to bring that experience back into everyday life and that's what I've been working on since my very first experience. And I'll probably, I'll hopefully, will continue to work on that uh, for the rest of my life. You, uh, in your book, there's some wonderful um, writing about the use of LSD uh, at the end of life or when you're facing the end of life. And Aldous Huxley, brilliant writer and experimenter and explorer of consciousness, um, did use LSD as an exit strategy uh, during the last days of his life magnificently, and that's been written about. 
What about you, Richard? Um, I think I'm going to be one of those who's lucky enough to go to sleep one night and simply not wake up in the morning. So I don't know if I, that's just my, my premonition. Uh, would I have the courage to take a psychedelic medicine uh, as I was in transition and passing? It's a great question, Charles. I've thought about it a lot. I really am I'm, I'm uncertain. I am uncertain. There is also a part of me that, 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 that sort of uh, appreciates Oh, natural. Right. Do, let's do it on the natch. I do it on the <laughs> this natch. This may be too important yeah, to go out I was, that I way. was always a big fan of that cartoon ca character, uh, Mr. Natural, yeah. from years ago. Yeah. So I don't know the answer to that. Looks like we're getting a signal here to wrap it up in our talk. Oh. By the way, my, my book, Psychedelic Medicine, is available on Amazon and a lot of the other uh, uh, booksellers online. Easy to find. And locally, we, you can buy right down at, at the uh, gallery at the local bookstores, store. right? Yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Well, um, I think that we're just about ready to, to um, wind things up. up. And Richard, as always, it's a delight to continue this conversation. I look forward to having it over and over again. And uh, thank you so much for writing your book. Thank you so much for being here today. And thank you all for listening to today's program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics.